Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 17th of February 2020 and this is episode 148. On today's programme, John Cornwall talks about his recent book on the first recruit and the last survivor of the 12th Battalion of the Yorks and Lanx Regiment, also known as the Sheffield City Battalion. This book was published by Pen and Sword. I spoke to John from his home in Sheffield. John, welcome to the podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Yes, well, I was born in Hull, but I've lived virtually all my life in, uh, in Sheffield. I was a teacher for 25 years, again, mainly, mainly in Sheffield, but I did teach abroad in a couple of countries. And the other important factor of my life was I was a local councillor on Sheffield City Council and on South Yorkshire County Council. Uh, as for the, the Great War, I mean, my interest in military history, uh, I, I'm almost certain, comes from the fact that I was a child during the First the Second World War. I was born in 1939, just before the war. And so by the Normandy invasion, about five but my interest obviously was about the Second World War, but something happened to me then. I, was, uh, I, I found a, a book in my grandfather's. We were living with my grandfather because the house had been bombed out in 1941, our house. Uh, I was living with my grandfather. I found a book in his, in his uh, bookcase that had lots of pictures of soldiers in the First World War. I'd never uh, I'd been unaware of the First World War before that. Many of these have become iconic pictures, uh, and many of, us, many of the listeners would recognize them. Uh, so that told me that there was a, there was a new war. They were wearing the same kind of helmets. The uniforms weren't all that dissimilar, but this was obviously different. And that was my first first knowledge of the First World War. But I think, like a lot of teenagers in the uh, 40s and 50s, there was so much to read about the Second World War and so many films to see about the Second World War. I read virtually everything that was ever published: the Gibsons, the Bardas, the Cheshires, etc. That uh, I, I didn't really follow very much on the First World War until I was a young adult and travelling on the continent. And I started, like a lot of people, I think, by seeing the, the great cemeteries in Belgium and in northern France. And uh, every year I go to the continent, we drive first probably to Ypres, because we cross over at Zeebrugge, but sometimes at Calais. And uh, we spend some time in, on the battlefield. And then on the return visit, we probably stop off at the Somme battlefield and look at the Teapot Memorial. And over the years, then, I've got to know quite a bit about uh, what goes on in the Ypres battlefield or what went on. I lost uh, my father lost a cousin there at Passchendaele, and uh, and also uh, on the Somme. So that's my that's my background in the first in the first world war. So what was the reason for writing the book that we're talking about um, today? I, I understand it was a collaborative affair. Can you tell me who else was involved? Well, the reason for doing it was I was asked to do it, and uh, the, the prime mover in all this uh, was Colonel Geoffrey Norton who is the chair of the trustees of the York and Lancaster Regiment. That's one of these vanished regiments. It disbanded in 1968. Uh, but the memory of it still keeps, keeps, uh, keeps on. And this book is about two people who were in the York and Lanx. Now, Geoffrey Norton, in 2014, uh, heard that there was a, an auction in, uh, in Bristol of memorabilia, uh, and including the military cross, and also many letters of uh, Captain Vivian Simpson, MC. And he knew about Captain Vivian Simpson, MC, because he was the first man to sign on for the uh, Sheffield City Battalion, which was a PALS battalion. I'll say a bit more about later on, the 12th Battalion. So he went down with a bid, and, uh, and he, uh, he, he, his bid was accepted. 
and he brought these back to the regimental museum. Uh, these uh, included two fantastic albums of uh, letters, over a hundred letters, mainly written from the trenches or from the front, anyhow, by Vivian Simpson, and that was one of my main sources. So the the driving force behind the idea was was uh, Colonel Norton, but uh, I was asked to to write it, and I was very pleased to do so. But he also knew Reg Glenn, uh, who died when he was 101 and was well known in the city. Uh, he, he was our Harry Patch, if you like, in the, in the 80s and 90s. Uh, and um, he, he thought of the concept that there was a juxtaposition between someone who was really rather posh uh, and had become an officer fairly well soon after he'd uh, uh, volunteered, and an, another man from a, a less well-off background who, um, who also became an officer uh, towards the end of the war. And... Uh, so, so this was this was his uh, his project really, and he asked me to uh, join him with it. And we also had Grand uh, Diane Glenn, who was a granddaughter of Reg, who knew him very well, and she could support us all the time in, uh, with information. And also Patrick Simpson, living in Somerset, who was the grandson of uh, of Vivian Simpson. So we had a little team of people who had a real personal interest in this story. And I was lucky enough and privileged enough to be able to write it up. Now, before we get into the detail, what sources did you have to uh, write the book? Well, the main ones were Vivian's letters. I said there was a hundred of them. They were in beautiful leather-bound volumes. I think they probably were meant to be rather expensive photograph albums originally. But there's someone had uh, stuck in, I think his brother George, because they were all to his brother George. He were into his wife, etc. But these were just one one of his brothers. And that was my main source. And they were in the Regimental Museum at, uh, at Rotherham, in the York and Lanks Regimental Museum. And as for Reg Glenn, he, we had transcripts, uh, transcripts rather, of uh, recordings that he'd made for the family uh, of his life in general, but especially his uh, service in the, in the First World War. And so those are my two main, main areas, apart from having people like uh, Geoffrey Norton, uh, Diane Glenn and, uh, and Patrick Simpson, who, who uh, could add further information. But one of the most important uh, uh, sources was uh, I was put in touch with a, with a, uh, a chap who was now a friend, really, who, who was a former police in, in chief inspector called Mark Goodwill, who had done a tremendous amount of research on the 12th Battalion. Uh, he, and he'd also specially done a thousand profiles, a profiles of a thousand volunteers. And this was absolutely invaluable. His information was almost always rock solid correct. That, that was uh, an invaluable support as well. So he was another one of our, of our team. Um, on top of that, there was obviously support from the Regimental Museum in Rotherham. Sheffield newspapers had photographs that they let us have. Um, there were North, North Staffordshire, uh, uh, or the Staffordshire Regiments Museum, because, as we'll discuss later, uh, Reg uh, was commissioned into the North Staffs. Uh, and then there were two very important books uh, that were an important source of reference. One was a book by a chap called Richard Sparling, who was a sergeant who served in the 12th Battalion, and he wrote this in 1920, and it was a heartfelt um, tribute to his comrades, especially the ones who died. And that was very much from someone who knew the people who were who were named and also had been in the action uh, during the First World War. And the second one uh, was uh, a book in 1988, 1988 rather, uh, called The Sheffield City Battalion by two authors, Ralph Gibson and Paul Oldfield. And um, 
they they wrote, a, a, I think, a brilliant account of the history of the 12th Battalion from the raising of it to now. And that helped me to navigate through the, the sort of odyssey of the Sheffield Battalion from uh, training training regimes at Redmires and uh, elsewhere in England um, to Egypt to uh, to the Somme uh, and to other battlefields before they were disbanded. Now let's start at the beginning. Can you give us some detail on the early backgrounds and pre-war lives of the two central characters, Reg Glenn and Vivian Simpson? Yes, well, uh, part of the, the, the plan of the book was to contrast them from different sort of social backgrounds. And um, Vivian Simpson very much came from the upper middle class. He lived in one of the rather um, uh, very, very pleasant uh, suburbs that we have in Sheffield, middle-class Victorian suburbs, late Victorian architecture. There's several of them. I, I, I'm lucky to live in one of them. He, he lived in the one I lived in, Netheredge, but also in Broomhill. There's others in Ranmore. Sheffield had really quite a sizable mid, professional middle class because of the steel industry. And there was half a million people in the, in the city. And so these, these were uh, very attractive, usually freestanding houses, and he grew up in, a, in, a, in large houses, um, detached houses with, they would have had uh, uh, grooms and uh, the stables originally, is it, um, and with servants. And so he was, he was very much from the upper middle class in, in, in the city. Now, Reg Glenn, some, some commentators have said, was from a working class background, and probably his family originally were. They came from Lincolnshire in the 19th century. But by the time Reg was born, the family would see themselves as lower middle class. And they lived in uh, a suburb which uh, was uh, in, in a terrace house, but a, but a modern terrace house. And uh, his father was a water rate collector. So you've got someone from an upper middle class background who was a bit older. He was 10 years older than Reg. He was, was Vivian. He was born in 1883. He was 31 when the war broke out, whereas Reg was only 21, which was the normal age, or the median age for people in this volunteer battalion. So people from two, two rather different backgrounds. Uh, Vivian went to what was probably the most prestigious school in the city, Wesley College, uh, which was a Methodist boarding school originally, which did also offer uh, degrees of London University at one stage. He didn't go away to the to the perhaps more exclusive public schools, which I've always been a bit surprised of, because his, ne- his nephew uh, during the First World War went to Winchester, and I think that was more the aspirations of the Simpson family. Uh, Reg Glenn went to his elementary school, where he was a very bright pupil, uh, and so he got a scholarship to the Central School, and the Central School in Sheffield is, is obviously in the name, in the middle of town, but it was one of these higher grade schools that um, had, uh, had come out of the 1870 Act when they, when they had bright pupils, they wanted to move on. And by 1905, when he went there, um, this had been, it was a grammar school under the 1902 Education Act. So he went to what was a new grammar school in the middle of town, and that sort of, again, raised his opportunities, even though he left school at 14. He left school at 14 because uh, you could get free education up to 14, but after 14, uh, you either had to get another scholarship, and he'd failed to get one of those, or he had to pay, and his family couldn't see the point of uh, going on further. But that education at that central school enabled him to become uh, a clerk, and essentially somebody who went to work in a suit and a waistcoat and um, and therefore was middle class by most definitions. Whereas Vivian was uh, a solicitor in his father's father's firm. Uh, he was expecting to get an article to his father, but his father died rather suddenly in 1900. But he worked with his brother 
and he eventually became a partner in, in the firm of solicitors and was well known around town. They were they were both interested in sport. Uh, Reg was a, a joiner and a, a joiner in the sense of a participant. He was in the Church Lads Brigade. He was in the um, Scouts, and he also was uh, a very useful footballer as well. Uh, but Vivian was from the very top drawer of sport, uh, and he was uh, a very good soccer player. Uh, and he played for uh, the main amateur club in the city, the most fashionable amateur club in the city, called Sheffield FC, who your listeners might know. FIFA recognises as the oldest football club in the world. Uh, and he played for them as an amateur. But uh, occasionally, 38 times over about five seasons, he played for Sheffield Wednesday. It was a rather odd sort of position. His, his, his normal match was with the amateur club, but the Wednesday called on him when they had a key match. And in 1904, he got a hat-trick against Man United. And there aren't many people around who can say that they got a hat-trick against Man United either then or now. They, he was an England trialist. He was that good, even though he was an amateur, an amateur gentleman. Something that was quite common in cricket, of course, until the 1960s, and, quite, and obviously quite common in rugby union, but was dying out in, 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 in soccer and football. And he also had some rather sad occasions because he was injured in 1904 and missed the Amateur Cup, which Sheffield FC won. And then in 1907, he missed the FA Cup, which Sheffield Wednesday won, even though he got a medal because he played in some of the participatory rounds. And he was also a very good cricketer. He played for Sheffield Collegiate Cricket Club, who were one of the best sides in Yorkshire, amateur sides in Yorkshire. Uh, he was an attacking batsman. He was capable of scoring centuries. And Sheffield Collegiate Club in recent years have produced two England captains, Michael Vaughan and Joe Root. And then he got injured at soccer rather badly, and his his football career was over. So he took up golf at Wortley Golf Club, which was founded by the Earl of Warncliffe, who lived nearby. It was his shooting lodge, was the clubhouse. And he was very quickly on to scratch um, uh, handicap. He, he, was a, he was a man who was very good at sport. Anything he turned his hand to, he did well. And um, just finally on, on Reg. Reg was a Wednesday supporter because he, he, his family had moved to Hillsborough. Uh, and he used to sneak into the ground when he was a kid for the last 10 minutes when the gates opened. So he would have known Vivian Simpson uh, because Vivian Simpson would have been one of their footballing heroes. It's very doubtful if Vivian Simpson knew Reg and he probably didn't know very meet him very often when they were in the same battalion during the war. On the Declaration War, Reg and Vivian both enlisted in the Sheffield City Battalion, which was the 12th Battalion of the Yorks and Lancashire Regiment. Could you tell us about this battalion, its social composition, and when it was raised? It was, it was a PALS battalion, but it called itself the City Battalion, because I think it thought the word PALS was a bit, uh, a bit common. It was blatantly aimed at, at, uh, at the middle class. Uh, Vivian himself said uh, to some of the influential people in the town hall, said, I'm, I'm quite happy to be a private soldier, uh, provided I can uh, soldier along with people of my own class. And that was the thinking behind this. And it, they weren't the only people who thought this. I mean, the, as far as I know, the first Pals Battalion was one of Sheff uh, London stockbrokers who became the 10th Royal Fusiliers. But the Pals Battalions were, was an idea that was catching on like wildfire across the country. Uh, once Kitchener decided he wanted to recruit more money and knew, knew he needed to recruit more men. Lord Derby was raising four battalions eventually for the King's Regiment in Liverpool. Uh, in Hull they raised four uh, Pals battalions. The 10th Battalion, again, was a rather posh one. That was the idea behind it. It's rather similar to the Sheffield one. Um, so this was, this was say, meant to be socially rather inclusive, uh, exclusive. And the original advert they put out, I've got it in front of me here, 
it actually called itself the Sheffield University Institute Battalion for the first week or two because the the university in Sheffield, which had been founded in 1905, uh, they claimed that this was their idea in the first place, or the idea of two two of their students who were in the OQC. Uh, and it was called Sheffield University and the City Special Battalion, but that eventually became, as we'll see in a minute, the City Battalion. And the advert says, for professional men, for businessmen, for teachers, for clerks, etc., etc., enroll at the town hall today. Uh, and the first day of enrolment was the 2nd of September uh, in uh, 1914. So they they... The university, um, especially their vice-chancellor, was Hal Fisher, who uh, became a minister after 1916 in, in, uh, in the coalition government of Lloyd George. They, they, they were part of the, of the idea, but there were people in the town hall who obviously had the, the same idea. And the people in the town hall, of course, had the money and the ability to make, to make one of these Powell's Battalions works. Because Powell's Battalions, as I'm sure your listeners know, uh, were separate from the army's organisation, they were um, they were paid for by some usually by the local local authority, and that's what happened with the Sheffield one. And the conservative and liberal leaders of the city council, they didn't consult the one or two labour councillors at that time. The liberal and conservative councillors, they just went ahead and formed uh, a committee, and and raised the battalion. And that meant that they had to fund it, and they had to fund its equipment, they had to fund its rations, its pay, they had to build a camp for it. Uh, they had to find, pay, and find uniforms for it. So it was it was really on uh, on battalion, and hence the name, the city battalion. Thinking behind it, it was it first uh, enrolled on September the second, and Vivian was the first man in to enroll. I think he was probably in the building already. I don't think he had to wait outside like many of the others, and uh, he. Uh, he was probably regarded as a bit of a catch because he would obviously be well known as a Sheffield Wednesday footballer who was on the brink, brink of international honours. Reg, Reg uh, signed up on September the 4th. He was, uh, to his, uh, he'd been seeing people standing outside the town hall. The, the education offices where he was working were just down the road. He was a clerk in the education uh, department, glorified office boy really. And uh, he'd seen people queuing outside the town hall to go in and sign. So the idea was, uh, it was obviously put a certain amount of interest in him and pressure on him, perhaps. Uh, and at, at uh, coffee break on, on the morning of the 4th of September, he and a pal said, uh, let's go and sign on. Reg was prepared to wait till lunchtime, but the pal said, let's go now. So they did. So they went down and they signed on as well. Uh, along, and within a few days, they'd got a thousand volunteers. They essentially got a battalion of people who came from this social background. The first parade was at Norfolk Barracks on the 14th of September, which is not far from Bramall Lane. There were speeches made by the uh, colonel, the commandant. Now, he was an interesting chap because he, he was uh, a member of the city council. In fact, he was the leader of the Conservatives on the city council. He'd been Lord Mayor from 1905 um, to 1906. He was a chap called Colonel Herbert Hughes. He was 61. Uh, he was also on the court of the university, so therefore he had a connection there as well. And uh, for, for nine years, he'd been the CEO of the Hallamshire Rifles, who eventually became the territorial battalion of the uh, York and Lancasters. Can I say something about the York and Lancasters and the, the, the name? Because I, can, I say I come from Hull, I'm from the East Riding, where our regiment was the East Yorkshires. That was all clear and obvious. Leeds and Bradford, the West Yorkshires. The York and Lancasters, I assumed, as I think many people do, that they were a hybrid, a sort of cross the Pennine. They 
recruited across the Pennine, but they weren't. They were, they were just recruited in Barnsley, Rotherham, and Sheffield. And if they were now, if they were now raised now, uh, that regiment, that's, that that was a name that the officers chose in, 19, in 1881, because they were two separate uh, regiments, 62nd and the 84th, uh, joined together. Um, but if they were raised now, they would be called the South Yorkshire Regiment because there is now a South Yorkshire County. So it was a regiment of uh, this, this uh, the area of Sheffield, Barnsley and Rotherham. And Barnsley raised, raised two uh, PALS battalions, first Barnsley PALS and the second Barnsley PALS. So the first parade was, I say, on the 14th of September. Uh, they, they made speeches and they, they were all lined up inside the drill hall. Hal Fisher was very keen on the war and um, very jingoistic. He, uh, he he got into some hyperbole, really went over the top, and he told them that they would carve for themselves a niche in the temple of history. And then they, they went home because they had no camp, they had no uniforms, they had no rifles. Uh, they, they, they lived at home. They arrived in the morning as if they were arriving for work. And uh, they did a lot of drill and route marching. And they drilled in local parks, and some of them drilled uh, on Bramall Lane. Now, again, the listeners may know that Bramall Lane originally was both a cricket ground and uh, and a football ground. Uh, I think in 1902 there was a Test match played there, um, and uh, so they they drilled on the outfield uh, until Sheffield United said the season's about to start and you're damaging our pitch. Uh, so they they. Uh, they, 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 they moved further over, more towards the cricket pavilion, but they used other parks as well. And so they were well, they were well known in the city. They, they were the toast of the city was this particular battalion. These were all the smart, these were the smart young men from the smart young sub, smart suburbs, and uh, they got a tremendous amount of press coverage. Uh, and many people think that this was all there was for the Sheffield Volunteers. These were the only ones. But at the same time, the York and Lancasters were uh, recruiting normal, run by the army, uh, service battalions, uh, five of them, the 6th Battalion, the 7th Battalion, the 8th Battalion, 9th Battalion, 10th Battalion. Uh, these were all being raised, but they went in the city. They were, they, went, they were going through camps out of the city and also through the regimental depot, which is in Pontefract, which is in West Yorkshire now, not, uh, not South Yorkshire. There was also a territorial battalion, which started raising extra, extra battalions, the rather famously here known as the Hallamshires. Uh, and there were also, because of the steel industry, there were many people in the Royal Engineers as well as in the Royal Artillery. So there were lots of volunteers in Sheffield joining other other uh, battalions of the York and Lancs, other regiments for that matter, uh, other corps. But the, the city battalion caught the imagination, partly because of who they were, uh, um, and also because they were very visible, they were walking, they were marching around the town, and they were around in the town. Uh, but for a start, they had, say they had no uniforms. Uh, they went home at the end of the day because they had no camp, and these things only came slowly towards them. To them, um, they got uh, uniforms in November. Uh, they'd already got about 600 Lee Medford rifles, rather old-fashioned rifles, in October. But in November they got uniforms, but they weren't the new khaki pattern. They were horrified to find that they were sort of light blue serge. Uh, and the, the kindest thing everyone said about them was that we make us look like postmen. But actually, the actual pattern of it, it had no uh, chest pockets. It just had flat pockets at the side. And it didn't look un unlike the German army uniform, 
which was uh, of the First World War, which was obviously in Feldkrau. Um, so they they also had no camp until December, and uh, the city council uh, built them a camp out at Redmires, which is on the west side of the city, on in the foothills of the Pennines. You're really out on the moors. I was there this weekend, and even though the sun was shining, it was pretty bleak out there. And to spend January in 1914, 1915, uh, sorry, um, from December 1914 to about May 1915, they would have found that a very bleak sort of area in which to train, which was obviously good training for them. In October, they got a new uh, CO. Obviously, Colonel Hughes was essentially an amateur as far as the army was concerned, and he was 61. He couldn't possibly have led them into action. And they got a, a regular army chap who spent most of his time in the Indian Army, called Lieutenant uh, Colonel, um, well, it's spelled Mainwaring, but he probably called himself Mannering, like the uh, chap in the TV program. But he was 53, but he was a regular, and he knocked his men into shape. And uh, he was he was, he was a bit of a tartar, I think. But the men expected someone like him to, to uh, discipline them, although Vivian said the officers hated him like poison. And then in, 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 while they went to Redmires in December, uh, the 12th Battalion, um, they got the name, the 12th Battalion. And so they were, uh, they were uh, now part of, formal part of the York and Lancaster Regiment. They'd been sort of ad hoc before that. And also the army in, in 1915 started forming divisions of these PALS battalions. And they found themselves in the 31st Division of the, of the um, new armies. It was going to be the 5th Army originally, but uh, the casualties they'd had so far in 1914 meant they couldn't uh, launch a 5th Army at that stage. And uh, there were three brigades to it. The 92nd Brigade were all battalions of the East Yorkshires. It's, it's known as the Hull Brigade in Hull, and is quite famous in that city. Um, and the 93rd Brigade was uh, the Leeds Pals and two battalions of the Bradford Pals, and the 94 Brigade was the one that the Sheffield City Battalion was in, along with two Barnsley Pals regiments, 13th and 14th York and Lancs. And there were t uh, so basically it was a Yorkshire division, a Yorkshire Pals division, except for two battalions to make up the numbers. One was the 18th DLI, uh, who were with the uh, Leeds and Bradford uh, Pals, and with the Sheffield Pals and the Barnsley Pals in the 94th Brigade was the 11th East Lancs, who are also rather famous because they are the, the Accrington Pals, who uh, figured in, uh, in dramas in, 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 in uh, later, later years. So, John, can you tell me about the war service of Reg Glenn and Vivian Simpson before September 1917, when things changed for both of them? Yes. Um, <clears throat> I'll start with Reg, actually, because his career was uh, coterminous with everything the 12th Battalion did up to that date. Uh, so, during 1915, he was involved in training. They got absolutely sick of it. They thought they were going to the front uh, when they left Redmires in, um, in that's the camp that the city council had built on the moors outside Sheffield. And when they left that in May, they assumed that it would be a very short period before they'd be in, at the front because they, some service battalions they knew about were there already. But in fact, they spent the whole of 1915 training. I wonder if the, the army just wasn't sure about these PALS battalions and how, how good they were. They went to Cannock Chase for a start after Redmires, and then they went to Ripon in North North Riding, and then they went to Herdcut down in uh, down in the south of England, uh, and then just in December, 
a small cadre of those went to France. So they said, oh, right, we're, we're, ready, we're, we're heading for France. A Canadian, a Canadian battalion that they replaced in their huts had, uh, had already gone. Uh, and then suddenly they found they were being given solar po- topies. Uh, they weren't given any uh, warm uh, tropical kit, but they were given solar topies. So they guessed they weren't going to France. And in fact, they got on a boat at Plymouth and sailed to Egypt uh, to be part of the force defending the Suez Canal against any possible Turkish attack after uh, after the Turkish victory at Gallipoli. They thought the Turks might be uh, emboldened to um, try and capture the, the Suez Canal as they'd made an effort in 1915 and they'd actually got across the canal some companies before they'd been repulsed. Uh, that, that journey to Egypt in 1916 um, was um, I think it was probably the t- first time Reg had ever been on a, a seagoing boat. They they were very wary about um, submarines. They did a, a big uh, circle around in the Atlantic off Gibraltar because there was thought it was one was uh, lurking there. That was on Christmas Day, and they had their Christmas lunches uh, sort of in the Atlantic, and most of them actually were sick afterwards. Reg one of them, uh, and their Christmas lunch went actually into the Atlantic. And then when they got in the Mediterranean, they again had to. Uh, take evasive action and turn back and uh, to avoid uh, submarines. So they actually arrived in Egypt on the 1st of January 1916, which wouldn't have mattered very much. The important thing, obviously, was getting the troops there, getting the whole division there in a number of ships. Uh, but they, uh, the fact they arrived on the 1st of January 1916 meant that they weren't eligible for the 1914-15 star, and that rankled very much with people, especially if they'd been in genuine danger in the Mediterranean and the Atlantic from submarines. Their, their time in Egypt, they didn't see any action. They, they moved up and down the canal and took up positions, etc. Uh, the Turkish threat didn't uh, didn't happen, and division and divisions came back and battalions came back from Gallipoli to uh, to rest after the mauling they'd had. Uh, and so, in March, they moved to France. Uh, they sailed across to Marseille, and this was a wonderful period for them because uh, it, this was uh, soldiering as tourism. Uh, they were seeing, you know, the, the, the fabled Holy Land, really. Uh, been in Egypt and uh, see, and then and then in southern France, and then a, a train journey up France through up the Rhone Valley, and they eventually arrived in the Somme sector of uh, Fourth Army, and they moved into uh, <clears throat> positions on the on the Somme battlefield, which they were going to occupy when the Great Push came in, uh, in the Great Attack came in the first of July. So uh, Reg was with him all the time, and uh, say so he was uh, his service was um, coterminous with what, whatever the battalion was doing. So on the first of July, uh, this battalion was in the front line, and it was at the very northern end of the line. They were the last, the last, uh, the last battalion, the last brigade of um, of Fourth Army. Uh, Third Army in the Arras sector wasn't going to advance, uh, and their their task was to capture. Uh, a rather unimpressive-looking village called Sir, up a slope, not a very steep slope, that the Germans had turned into a, into a fortress over the years. It was defended by the 169th Regiment that came from Baden, who put up a tremendous fight on the first day of the Somme and afterwards known as the Iron Regiment. So on the first day of the Somme, Reg was ready. Well, first of all, he, he wasn't expecting to be in the, 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 the attack for a start because he had been uh, told that he was going to be in the 200-odd men who would get behind. Uh, around which uh, the battalion, a carada of people, around which the battalion could reform if there was a disaster. But at the last minute, he was moved forward to battalion headquarters. And during the assault on the German positions at Sir, he was in the front line, but he didn't actually advance the troops. He was with battalion headquarters. 
what he did, could see, though, was <clears throat> exactly what was happening out front in no man's land. He saw the the, uh, the A and C companies go forward, take up a position, lie down and wait while the barrage cleared off the German lines. And then the whistles went and they advanced. Uh, and as far as Reg was concerned, he seemed to think that uh, they went a few yards and then they all sort of lay down again. Uh, but of course, they, were, they weren't just laying down and resting in a new position. They, were, they had actually been decimated by the German machine gun fire and and uh, and uh, small arms and mortars and and uh, and obviously rifle fire by the German musketeers. The first of July is an absolute disaster for the uh, for the uh, 12th Battalion, as it was for the Accrington Pals next door, the 11th East Langs. Uh, they were the two lead battalions for the uh, for the brigade, and. Um, their, their losses were massive. It's it's uh, it's uh, for for virtually no no gain whatsoever. C um, C Company was caught on the wire. Couldn't get through the wire. The wire wasn't destroyed. A few a few uh, hardy souls in A Company may have got into the German trenches, led by uh, one or two uh, young officers, because their graves were found in the German in the German mines later on when the Germans withdrew. Um, but it was it was an unmitigated disaster, and their losses were massive. Uh, of the 747 men taking place, taking part in the attack, they weren't using the whole battalion, but 747, 576 were casualties, of which 248 were killed, and, and 17 died later from their wounds, and four of them became POWs, one of them died as well. So more than two-thirds of the battalion were casualties, and many of them dead, and amongst the officers, 18 officers were casualties, of which eight were dead. Uh, and I say, by any any reckoning, it was a complete disaster. They made no progress whatsoever. Um, whereas people like the Ulster Division were making progress at Teepval, uh, they weren't. And uh, the, the the plan was that they would capture Sir, and then they would hold it and turn round and form a northern uh, a northern defensive position, so that any German uh, trying to attack the Somme battlefield and get behind the British lines, the new British if, when, if the British had advanced. Uh, they would find that they, uh, what had been their strong point was now a British strong point to hold them back. But of course, they didn't really get, they didn't get into the village at all. And by the end of the day, uh, the casualties were being crawling back from the shell holes in the dark. Uh, Reg lost his best friend that day, Leslie Moore, who came from Rotherham, uh, and he was one of the ones who went slipped out through the wire and and went some distance to no man and tried to find his his friend as other people would try to do for others. So it, it, so it's a day which resonates in the history of the city, partly because uh, John Harris wrote a book called Covenant of Death, which was a fictional account, but it was a fictional account about the 12th Battalion. And so this is, uh, this is uh, one of the big famous events in, in Sheffield's history, uh, up there with the Sheffield flood of the 19th century. There's just a postscript to this, uh, what happened on the Somme battlefield, that... Uh, when the Germans withdrew in February of 1917 back to the Hindenburg line, of course, they left these positions, uh, and Reg went with the Padre back to the battlefield. They, they weren't in that immediate vicinity at the time, and he went out into no man's land, which, of course, was all cut up and, and uh, full of debris, and he found row, rows of men in, in rows, the skeletons, in, in shoddy bits of uniform that were still tattered, some of them still wearing the helmets, stuck on their skulls. Uh, I mean, an appalling situation. And the Padre went as far as the German wire and turned round 
and had an impromptu service of remembrance for the for the uh, for the dead who were lying in rows in front of him. And Reg uh, Reg sang uh, a couple of hymns from the hymns Ancient and Modern, and he apparently kept that hymn book for the rest of his life. But it was a, a very poignant moment. Uh, these two people. Um, doing a service of remembrance, really, for the dead who were lying in front of them, or the, or the, the skeletons and their bodies. Um, after that, the, they went into reserve for a while, but by the 24th of July, uh, they were back in the line at Neuve Chapelle. So they really were only out for three weeks, and they once again got their strength up by bringing in recruits. But these recruits weren't from the York and Langs, they were from a number of county regiments, and from that moment onwards, the Sheffield City Battalion is no longer just Sheffielders or people from the Sheffield area. Uh, and by the, by the time of the, the battalion being disbanded, uh, people from other parts of the country actually outnumbered those who had been original volunteers from Sheffield. So that was Reggie's story. And as for um, Vivian, uh, he, he continues to train troops in England. He was very, very upset about it. When the battalion marched out of Red Myers uh, to continue training elsewhere in England, he stayed there. Uh, he was chosen to be the training officer. I'm never quite sure. He was obviously very good at training. He was, he was very good at anything he put his hand to, this chap. Uh, and he was obviously a very good training officer. But it may have been that he, was, uh, he had very strong views about other officers and, and about uh, commanding officers and, and uh, company officers, company commanders. And uh, they probably felt that uh, Vivian was someone they could do without. Um, anyhow, he, he, he thought he got a promise from them that when they, were, when they did go to France, as they were expecting, he would be recalled to the battalion, but he wasn't. So during that year of 1915, he, uh, he got himself married. Uh, that was something that was on the cards anyhow, but he, uh, he was in England, so it was possible to do. Um, and he also managed to play quite a bit of golf at this Berkeley Golf Club, which he was very proud to be a member of. And he actually won the Captain's Cup in 1915. And there's a photograph in the book of the Honours Board, Captain V.S. Simpson, 1915. He also went on a course to uh, Sandhurst. And he was, he was actually quartered at Camberley at the Staff College. Because when the war broke out, the Staff College people all went off to do their Staff College work um, at the front. So there was room at Camberley, but there wasn't room at Sandhurst because there were still cadets being trained there. Uh, but he was in a, a one-month intensive course for officers, and one assumes this was he was picked because he was seen as someone who might be someone who would move up to uh, company commander rank and get a captaincy. Um, but he, he he found that very interesting, and obviously Sandhurst and Camberley were pretty impressive places. And he also found a golf course around the around the corner called Camberley Heath. He um, he got his recall to the battalion after the disaster at Sir on the Somme on the first day of the Somme. He didn't actually get uh, out immediately. I don't know why, uh, but um, he uh, he was in the bull ring at uh, Etaples by uh, uh, by the end of uh, the end of June, uh, sorry, the end of July. Um, but he, he didn't actually reach the battalion until the fourth of August. There was obviously work to be done at the bull ring, uh, processing new officers coming out, and he rejoined them at Neuve Chapelle, and then through 1916 and uh, into 1917. He was uh, in the front uh, regularly, and he was quite often not just a platoon commander, but he increasingly was put in charge of the companies. So he sometimes held the rank of acting captain and had three pips, and then next next time, uh, when somebody came back from a course or whatever, he 
he went back to be an ordinary second lieutenant. He found that very, very annoying as he was doing all the hard work. And he did do uh, what he called one stunt there, where he led a, a raid on the German trenches, which was uh, very effective and showed, showed to all his superiors that not only he was a good organiser and a generally useful officer, but also a very brave one as well. Uh, in, uh, he then was out of the line because he got an abscess on his tonsils and he was taken to hospital in the Boulogne area and then he was allowed to go back to England to recover so he spent Christmas 1916 in Sheffield and um, he uh, he'd, he'd, uh, had a son in May of 1916 so he spent uh, that, uh, that Christmas with his son I think he had seen him as a baby before he, before he left but this was the first time he'd, he'd spent any time with him. When he came back, he had appeared as the adjutant of the battalion, uh, where, again, he was he was very highly thought of. But the big thing for him, uh, for uh, the big event in, in 1917, was an attack uh, at a place called Gra Gra Gravel, Gavrel, uh, which was just south of Oppie Wood, northeast of Arras. This was a, a very hot, part, hot spot in the line. There was something called the Windmill Spur at Gavrel, which uh, changed hands eight times uh, during that year. And um, the, the British decided they were going to make a major offensive at a brigade level to take the Gravel Centre, uh, to, to take the Gravel Line. And Vivian was put in charge of planning the uh, 12th Battalion's, uh, uh, well, it's called a raid, but really it was a bite-and-hold a bite attack at battalion level. Uh, well, at brigade level, but just for them for battalion level, and he 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 planned it and he organised it, and it was incredibly successful. Unlike many of these things, and he also was the first man into the German trenches, um, where there was sort of vicious hand-to-hand -hand fighting before the Germans were relatively quickly defeated. I think the, the, his letters say it only took two minutes really to secure the area, and there were very very few casualties. So, unlike the rest of the uh, the Western Front, where attacks on German held positions, especially ones they wanted to really maintain, uh, usually produced a big casualist. This one uh, didn't, and he gained credit for that. But he also gained incredible credit for grasping. That one of the great dangers when you've, grasped it, when you've uh, captured a trench is that you lose it to the immediate counter-offensive, the counter-attack. And so part of his planning was that as soon as they, they uh, um, gained control of the trench, sent back prisoners, um, they consolidated the trench, and that meant digging it out again because the artillery had turned it into about a two-foot uh, two deep trench. So they spent the next hour or two digging out the trench. Uh, they took about 7,000 sandbags with them, and they filled 7,000 sandbags. This is the whole battalion, I think. So they'd, they were, they were um, uh, putting the defense on the German side, uh, they also moved the what wire they could lay lay their hands on on the German side and put that put put that sorry put that over on the German side as well. So they completely reversed the the the, the trench so it was facing the German German front lines. Uh, they put out some Lewis gunners gunners in front to make sure any German patrols were frightened off. And so by by the evening uh, this was an impregnable position. And when Germans tried to attack it, they would they were they were driven off. And um, the following morning, he took around a, a colonel from the staff, and he was just amazed at the, at the way they'd done this and considered it a model exercise that uh, Vivian ought to write up. And so for, for that particular occasion, it's called the Cordona Trench Raid. 
because the trench they were attacking was named Cordona, which I assume was a, just a British name for it after the Italian uh, general, the man who lost at Caporetto. And um, it, it, this, this was seen as such a successful operation, both in, in terms of capturing the trench with little losses and then making sure it was secured, uh, that he was awarded the military cross for his action in leading, leading the attack. Uh, but he was also got a mention in dispatches uh, for his work in consolidating the position and making sure that it was held and not lost in a, in a, in a, in a counter, as often happened. He was, he was the only officer in the 12th Battalion. It's really rather surprising because the, the Barnsley Pals had several military crosses, but he was the only officer to win the military cross. There was an RSM who'd, uh, um, who'd won the military cross who was in the 12th Battalion, but he, say, he was the only officer in the whole battalion ever to win the military cross. And uh, immediately afterwards, he was confirmed as a captain as well. They were called temporary captains, but it meant that they were temporary for the entire war, which was better than being an active captain. So he, he had his three pips and he could keep it that way. Later on in the summer, they moved to uh, a position in front of the Vimy Ridge, which the Canadians had captured uh, earlier. Um, the Vimy Ridge, uh, for people who've been there and been to the Canadian Memorial, um, this is the very steep slope. is on the German was on the German side, on the eastern side, and so the Germans were were not going to find an attack on Vimy very very easily. And in fact, they pulled back quite a way, several miles. So he was in 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 an area in front of the Vimy in September 1917, which had become a quiet area. Really, there was from the German point of view, there was no point in attacking uh, the Vimy Ridge from that side. Uh, he was quite happy with this being. They put in the odd patrol, but uh, basically. It was live and let live between the Germans and the and the British forces. And then he had a brigadier come along who uh, uh, thought this was all far too quiet and that we ought to uh, waken up the, the Bosch and, uh, and start, uh, start some active uh, patrolling and attacks. And he was planning one, and he went out uh, into no man's land uh, when he was injured in the, in the arm and the hip. Um, and uh, at the time, he just thought he was a blighty one but he turned out to be considerably more serious. And he was uh, invalided back to England. And um, he, uh, he again spent Christmas in, in, in Sheffield. So they, the story of the two of them is that they were very much involved in the action in 1916 and 1917. So what happened to Reg and Vivian after September 1917 during the last year of the war? Reg had been promoted to Lance Corporal. Um, first time he'd been recognised, actually. Uh, but then the, um, the CEO was prepared to consider him for a commission. I mean, he basically put, put himself forward for a commission, and uh, they decided that he was of suitable quality. And so he left the um, battalion in, in August and went back to England to start his training to become an officer. Uh, and the, his particular uh, unit, it was number four officer training uh, unit, was based at New College, Oxford. Uh, which, despite the name, was one of the ancient and most uh, most prestigious colleges in in Oxford, um, and uh, it um, obviously they wanted the officers, uh, people who were trained to be officers, to get some sense of the grandeur of their position, and um, they were often in places like uh, Oxford colleges, uh, and the irony wasn't lost on on uh, Reg because he'd left school at fourteen. Uh, with no real qualifications, although it had essentially it was essentially a grammar school at that stage, uh, to be now in, in New College, Oxford, and uh, studying during the winter of 1917-1918. Uh, he, was, he was 
part of this phenomenon of the new of the new officer class, if you like, the people of fairly ordinary backgrounds, many of them have proved themselves in the trenches, many of them, well, I suppose, were senior NCOs by now. Uh, he was only just a, a lunch shack. But uh, they proved themselves in the trenches, and they were now being considered for commissions, and in his case, uh, he, he, he passed and gained his commission. This was something which um, he would never have dreamt of in 1914. Officers were people on a different plane and lived in a different part of the town. Uh, but here he was, one of the new officers. And from the 12th Battalion, there was at least 283 of them uh, were commissioned during the war. And it's probably a higher figure than that, because some people went off to other battalions and then were commissioned from there. And that's that's because uh, it was a battalion of uh, really rather well-educated people. And, uh, in fact, the Army, really, if it had to think about it, would have had them would have commissioned them in the first place but they were replacing the the officers of the new army of the um, regular army and the territorial army and of the new armies for that matter who'd been killed in the first two or three years of the war he he, uh, he was commissioned in i think the end of january 1918 he was given a choice of three regiments he could choose any three regiments uh, and he he put down north staffs uh, kings on yorkshire light infantry coily and the York and Lanks, but he didn't really want to go back to his own battalion, but there were other battalions he could have gone to. But he, he made North Staffs his number one, and uh, I think the reason for that was that he was very pally with a chap in the in the North Staffs, who was going to be an officer in the North Staffs at the uh, at the office training uh, unit, uh, who got a, an uncle who was a colonel. And I think he rather persuaded him to ask for the to be in the North Staffs. And he was he was then sent to the eighth battalion of the North Staffs who were part of a uh, service battalion, of course, who were part of the 19th Division. And when he arrived, they'd just been pulled out the line at Ypres, where they'd had a real mauling. Uh, they'd been involved in the German offensive of, uh, of 19, uh, 1918, uh, around Mount Kemmel, uh, and had been very badly mauled. And so they were sent... Uh, he, he wasn't part of the action. Uh, the, uh, he'd hadn't, he wasn't there in time for any, any action in the front. And then they were sent to the Champagne district, uh, area, north of Paris, uh, northeast of Paris, uh, the French sector of the line, just south of the Chamandy Dams, where the uh, where the French army had had a disaster in 1917, comparable with uh, the British disaster on the Somme. Uh, and they were, this was seen as a quiet area. In fact, he even had a short trip to Paris, which was just down the road, and was one of the uh, one of the pluses of serving in that area. And they expected to be out of the line and recovering and essentially um, to, to have had a relatively easy time. Unfortunately for them, Ludendorff had decided that in the Blue York Offensive that this was exactly the route that he was now going to press uh, as part of his Kaiserschlacht uh, battles uh, to try and envelop Paris and uh, deliver a knockout blow to the French even at this late stage in May of 1918. And the, the uh, 8th Battalion and the 19th Division was rushed to the front to block to block the German advance, along with French units, and uh, the 50th, 50th Northumbrian Division was there and got very, very badly mauled as well. And uh, he was only in action for one day, less than one day, when he was injured, injured. He'd gone through all the time in the in the 12th Battalion with nothing more than a few scratches. Uh, his first day as an officer in action, uh, he was injured, he was taken back to a casualty clearing centre. He, he actually was taken to an American hospital because they were in this area. In fact, it was the Americans at Chateau Thierry uh, that helped to stop the uh, the German advance. 
uh, a day or two later. Uh, and then he was back at Oxford, uh, but this time at Somerville College, um, which was a ladies' college, and it was the summertime, and he recuperated there, and he had a wonderful time. He was punting on the river, and there were uh, attractive young ladies around, and uh, uh, he could enjoy Scott, uh, enjoy the life in Oxford in a way he hadn't been able to do in the winter of uh, uh, previously when he'd been at New College. Once he'd recovered, he was sent as a training officer, uh, to, to the North Staff's uh, unit that was based up in the in the Northumberland area. And then later on, he was sent to Cameronians, uh, Cameronian uh, training uh, unit at Invergordon uh, on the Murray Firth. Uh, and that's where he ended his war. Uh, the armistice came while he was there. He never returned to France. He was degraded B1, unfit for uh, frontline service. And so his war was over. Uh, but he'd seen plenty of service with the 12th Battalion, but not really very much with the uh, 8th North Staffs. Now, as for, as for uh, Vivian, uh, he, he, in September 1917, as we said, he was, he was injured. Turned out to be, like, as with, as with uh, Reg, they didn't think it was much for a start, but these things uh, were often much more serious than they, than they imagined when they first got them. Um, once he'd recovered, and he again had Christmas 19... Uh, 1917, back home in Sheffield with his wife and uh, son and her family. Once he'd recovered, he was, um, um, or partly recovered, he was ta taken on for training again at Cannock Chase in January and February. And uh, once again, he, he was very effective at it. He, he was also training young subalterns as well, uh, not just um, not just other ranks. Um, and he was he was essentially given a get-out-of-jail get card because he was offered a chance to continue training uh, by the CO. Uh, he'd, he'd got a military cross, he'd, he'd had a year or so in, in action, he proved himself in the battlefield. Uh, he could quite easily have said, uh, okay, I'll stay as a training officer, in which case he would have been alive at the end of the war. But he wasn't that sort of bloke, and the, uh, he volunteered to go back in, in March of 1918, back to the front. Now, when he got, when he, um, went back to the front, he found he couldn't rejoin the 12th Battalion because they had been disbanded in uh, February of uh, 1918. The army did a big reorganization. Um, brigades went down to three battalions and uh, um, some battalions were, were say, disbanded. Some brigades were disbanded. The 94th Brigade, the, the 12th Battalion, was disbanded. So there was a lot of consolidation. Um, but he managed to get into the 13th Battalion. The 12th Battalion, by the way, in the time they'd been in France, from March 1916, when they arrived at Marseille, to being disbanded in February 1918, it had 439 dead fatalities. Uh, and there was probably several others who'd moved on to other regiments, especially officers who were also killed. So it had, they'd, they'd, uh, they'd, they'd had a, a pretty torturous time. So the, the one battalion of the York and Lancs uh, uh, in this brigade that was uh, continued was the 13th Battalion, which was the 1st Barnsley Powells. And he knew people in that battalion, and, and COs and people like that had moved, company commanders had moved between the battalions. And of course, they were all in the same brigade. And so he was lucky enough to get a, a company in the, in the Barnsley Powells. And he found that the company he had, which was now called C Company, was basically the same as A Company, which he'd left in... 1917 in the in the other battalion it was many of the same sort of sort of the same people uh, so he was, he was with familiar people 
and almost immediately he was in action because the Ludendorff uh, uh, Kaiserschlacht offensive of March, um, which was very successful on the Somme and, uh, and forced the Fifth Army back to Amiens, um, which they never took, of course, um, but also made an attack on Arras and his division, um, still the 31st Division, but now had a guards brigade with Coldstreamers and Grenadiers and uh, I think Welsh or, um, uh, battalions. Um, they, they were they were in the thick of the fighting on the on the Arras front, just south of Arras, and uh, this was very hard. It, it comes out as letters. I mean, they hardly ever had any sleep. And uh, in one letter, I don't know if it's pure bravado, but he says he'd never enjoyed himself so much as he was during the present fight. Although his hobnail boots were giving him absolute hell, um, and at one stage he was the CEO for two days because for one reason or another. Uh, both the, the commanding officer and the two IC were uh, were out of action, so he did command the battalion. And if he'd lived, I'm certain he would have been a major uh, by the end of the war, if not uh, if not a, a temporary uh, lieutenant colonel commanding a battalion. Unfortunately for him, the the battalion was the division was moved from the Arras front where they'd held the Germans. The Germans, of course, never took Arras, uh, and so the new offensive that the Germans were planning on the lease uh, just south of the Bel Belgian border, aimed at uh, Hazelbrook for a start, the rail centre, and then at Boulogne and the Channel Ports, um, maybe hoping to have a 1918 Dunkirk. And uh, he, uh, he, he was uh, rushed to that area and say on April the 13th, the battalion was in action uh, and he was defending a, a, a crossroads just outside. I've been there actually. A crossroads just outside a village called Vieux the Queen. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it in French, but it uh, and uh, it was during the night, and he moved from one side of the cross of the crossroads to another, and a sniper got him uh, in in the groin, and he died very shortly afterwards. The the body had to be abandoned because the battalion had to make a quick uh, quick retreat. Um, but in July, one of his brother officers, who'd one of the people who'd been inspired to go back to France, actually by the fact that Simi was going back to France, so he damn well thought he ought to, and he went back in a chap called Cowan and he got the military cross. So he, he found, found a body which he thought was uh, uh, Vivian's, he's got the same, he got cut some rank markings, but uh, it wasn't recognisable as such until he found uh, um, an identity desk in, in one of his pockets. And so they, they, they could identify him, and he was buried at Uchestein, which is about two miles down the road from uh, via Berquin. They put up a, a rather nice temporary marker, and then, of course, it now has a proper military headstone. I've been there. I went there with my son in 1917 and found uh, Vivian's grave. And uh, that was, the, the say, the end of his war. He, 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 was, uh, he was 34 when he, when he died. No, uh, 35, 35 when he died. Uh, so he'd had a half a life. Uh, and like some of them who were killed in their late teens or early twenties. So what did Reg do after the war? Well, he, he got himself demobbed in 1919. He, he was offered the chance to stay on in the army for, for a short period. He would have gone to Germany with part of the um, army occupation if he had. Uh, but really, he'd, he'd had uh, uh, four and a half years in, 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 the, in the military, and that was enough. And he got his old job back at the education department, 
where, ironically, he was still just a clerk. This is a bloke who'd been commanding training establishments and commanding platoons in action. Um, in fact, there's quite a lot of freesun between the those who'd uh, gone to war and now came back. Many of them had been quite junior before, but were now uh, either sergeants or or officers. Uh, and the older the older people and uh, those who hadn't gone to fight in the war, I imagine that happened in offices and works all over the country, didn't it? So they weren't quite sure how to how to deal with each other. He never seems to have had any um, shell shock. He was he was he, he claimed that he never worried. Uh, so if he did have it, he, he, it was private and he kept it to himself. Uh, but the war was a defining experience for uh, for Reg. How could it not be, as it was for millions of people, even though he was still only a young man. Uh, and I think it's fair to say that he spent a lifetime in remembrance, really, uh, in organisations and events that uh, remembered his fallen colleagues, and especially those who he knew quite well. Uh, the two people who were, I think he was 9 to 8, when he first joined up in the 12th Battalion, they were numbered differently as the rest of the army. And 926 and 927 uh, nine nine uh, are both buried at, uh, on the Somme battlefield. Uh, and he visits their graves, as he does for his best friend, Leslie Mort, who's, who's also buried there. And when he went back there, he would always go to those graves first and uh, tap them on the, back, on, the, on the top of the headstone and say, I'm back. Um, so, the, so the war was a defining experience, and he took part in, he belonged to something called the 12th Club. Those who'd been in the 12th uh, Battalion as volunteers, uh, they formed an association, which was a, a very live one during the interwar period. After the war, he became the secretary of it, but eventually, of course, it ran out of people because they were, they were dying off. Um, and the 12th, the 12th Club had their own parades when there was important um, memorials to be unveiled uh, and there were quite a few there were some of the cathedral in Sheffield a, a battalion uh, plaque to the battalion there was an occasion when they laid up the color of the 12th battalion service battalion has got colors in the end just just a king's color just the union jack but uh, that was laid up in Sheffield Cathedral um, he also uh, was um, invo involved in the parade when the York and Lancaster's memorial itself in 1923 which is in close by the University in Western Park, uh, commemorates 8,814 8, members of the regiment who were killed in the First World War. And the same year, he went back to Sir um, on the Somme, where the, uh, where the unveiled a memorial specifically to the 12th Battalion, which is on the road leading into Sir. It's uh, rather ironic, because no, no British troops reached Sir uh, during the attack on Sir in, on the 1st of July. But the memorial is there, and it's just to the 12th Battalion, and, and he was there. And it enabled him for the first time to go back over the battlefield. And there's a photograph in the book with, a, with, a, with a, an old rifle that's all rotted away, and no doubt there were other bits of, uh, bits of equipment that they picked up on the battlefield where they'd, they'd fought in the, uh, on that uh, dreadful day on the 1st of July. He was involved in other things, and in 1927 he was chosen by the Sheffield City Council, probably because he was an employee and he was important in the, in the 12th Club, to go to the unveiling of the uh, Menning Gate. So he represented uh, Sheffield at the Menning Gate. Uh, he didn't represent the 12th Battalion because they'd never been at, uh, never fought in Belgium. They'd always been in, in, in France. Um, he, he then got very much involved with the Fellowship of the Services, who had been formed in the late 1920s. He joined them in 1933, 
And then in 1938, he became the mess president of a, of a new, a new um, mess in, called Sheffield Number no. 10, which was in his own area of Hillsborough uh, in Sheffield. And when he retired as a senior buildings officer, he stayed working for the education office, the education department, the city council for all of his working life. Uh, but he was uh, 65 in uh, 1954, uh, uh, and he he retired as a senior buildings officer. And once he did that, he could have thrown himself much more into the work of the fellowship. And very shortly afterwards, he became the national chair of the uh, of, of the fellowship of the service. Uh, during the Second World War, he, he was obviously too old to be in the forces, but he was, a, he was an ARP warden. And uh, another major event in Sheffield's military history uh, was the, the Blitz in December, two, two nights of Blitz in December. The house I'm living in now, which I'm talking to you from, was burnt out in, uh, in, in, in that Blitz of 1914, rebuilt, somewhat different to its neighbours that it once looked exactly like. Um, and he, he, he plays part in that and no doubt the rest of the war, but uh, they didn't have, he wasn't, uh, um, wasn't, there wasn't too much involvement of Sheffield in, in, the, in the aerial bombardment after that 1940 blitz. Um, his regiment, the, y, the York and Langs, were actually disbanded in 1968. They went, there was a lot of amalgamations going on. The East Yorkshires, for instance, joined with the West Yorkshires. Um, <clears throat> And the light infantry regiments, like Coyley, all became one light infantry regiment, different battalions. Um, but the York and Langs decided they didn't want to join up with the Duke of Wellington's or the Halifax and Huddersfield Regiment. Uh, and so they decided to uh, just disband. And so their memories kept going by people like uh, Reg and by uh, Colonel Geoffrey Norton. Um, but eventually uh, it, it'll die out, the, the, the uh, people who were in the in the... Obviously, all the people from the First World War died, but most of those from the Second World War were active. The battalion actually had four, four battalions in Burma, one of which was a Chendis battalion, two in Italy, and others in northern, northwest Europe and in North Africa. Uh, right, in, 19, in 1980, when the uh, Western Front Association uh, got started, uh, they linked up with, uh, with Reg. They obviously knew of him. He, he'd become quite, quite famous in Sheffield, really. The press had got hold of his story, uh, and uh, he, he uh, on behalf of the Western Front Association, he went into local schools, and he also talked to adult groups as well. And his son said, uh, and he was very good, he was very humorous, and he was very articulate, right until he was 101, uh, when he died. He was, he, was, he was very sharp as a button, and uh, so he had a, had a very pleasant personality. One press man said, and I've used it as a chapter heading, uh, he had a smile that never came off. And I knew him personally, and I met him because I talked with his son. And one of his sons said that when he went into a local school, especially a, a primary school, young kids, uh, he said it was like as if a pharaoh had walked in to tell them all about ancient Egypt. They couldn't quite believe that this old man had actually done all these things. And uh, he was involved in a television documentary uh, that uh, was called Lions Led by Donkeys. You may recollect it. It made quite an impression. Uh, and he was also at the opening of the teep, uh, the, uh, the anniversary of Teepval with the Duke of, Duke of Kent. So he, he became a bit of a national figure, actually. And I think I said earlier, he, he was, he was uh, our, our Harry Patch, really. Uh, and he, he had a certain, uh, well, more than a certain amount uh, uh, of local fame. When he was 100, uh, the, players, uh, the Western Front Association 
they hired the Players Theatre in, in London and they put on an event uh, which was for a number of people, of, of uh, veterans from the First World War who'd helped them. Uh, but he was the star turn and he was leading the singing from the, from the, uh, from the platform and he was wearing a, sweat, a sweatshirt that his, uh, uh, that his uh, um, granddaughter had uh, designed that said Reg, Reg Glenn Superstar 100 years old. Uh, and he he, uh, he he brought the house down, and he he was a big coloured photograph on the on, on, in the Times uh, newspaper the following day. Uh, he continued to go to the battlefield. He went regularly with the fellowship or with the Western Front Association. Uh, the last time he went, he was a hundred years old in 1993. And to add to uh, the achievement, he he broke his arm, <laughs> and he went with a pot on it. And he died the following year, in June of 1994. Uh, and the Western Front Association held a service at Sir, uh, at one of the cemeteries at Sir, in, 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 his, in his memory, which was a very nice gesture by them. When he died in, 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 in 1994, he was the last survivor of the 12th Battalion, the Sheffield City Battalion. He was the last survivor by quite a way. Finally, uh, John, where can people learn more about the book? Well, I'm told by Pen and Sword, it's Pen and Sword, the Barnsley-based uh, um, publishers, um, that um, if you get on the Pen and Sword website, they can tell you uh, where you can get. At the moment, it's only in hardback. Now, they've, they, Pen and Sword have also said that for uh, Western Front Association people who are using this podcast, they can get a 20% discount by contacting uh, PNS on the uh, by contacting the PNS uh, website, Pen and Sword website. And they get a, a digital discount v- voucher by quoting Chef 20, S-H-E-F-F, Chef 20. And this will operate from the 1st of February for a whole year. So this will be, this will be a, say, a 20% discount. Alternatively, there's a paperback version coming out in May uh, of uh, this year, and that's, only, that's going to be 14.99. John, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, OK. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.